You may be seated. I like the Bible. I like uh, specifically in regards to the Bible. I like the Bible's honesty. The Bible is so honest, and I find that's helpful. Uh, and specifically, of course, we're in James, and James is just extremely honest. As I said a couple weeks back, that when I read James, I kind of I kind of like to think of, you know, James lives in my living room. He, he, he drives with you to work. Like, it, it seems like when, when you're reading James, he's reading my mail. He knows where I live. He knows the hardships of life. He knows what Christians are struggling with. And he's here to address those struggles. James, I also love James because it's reality. There's just so many things about the book of James that I go, well, that's just real life. And it's your life and my life. And I like that that's how the Bible is. The Bible, you you might be new to the Bible and we think that's wonderful. Thank you for being here and thank you for digging into your Bible. But Sometimes when we think about the Bible, actually not just if you're new, sometimes if you've been familiar with the Bible for a long time, you tend to think of this book as as a collection of superheroes, godly superheroes, people who've got it all figured out and doing it right. They're the ones, right, that make it into this book. And the answer to that is, no, that's wrong. Actually, Actually, they're not the superheroes, and they're not the ones who, actually what's cool about God's word is the people who don't get it right make it into this book. Because the book is not about the people and how good they are. The book is about how sinful man is, and God in his mercy and his grace comes to redeem fallen man. And that's the book of James. That's all of us. That's that's what we're looking at. This morning, I hope you read the Bible like that. I hope you find yourself, uh, well, what was read earlier from Psalms. Why so downcast, O my soul? Just that kind of honesty. The Bible can handle that kind of honesty. The Bible includes that kind of honesty. Hope in God, soul. Hope in God. Or how, or how the psalmist will cry out, how long, O Lord? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're having a how long, oh Lord, moment, week, month, year, decade. How long, oh Lord? Well, James exists to help us in the struggles, the trials of life, when life isn't easy. And he's willing to, I'm so grateful he is. He's willing to look at suffering in the eyes and to help us process the trials. He's willing to look temptation in the eyes and he's willing to speak straight to us and with us. And he's telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to be pretenders. We don't have to paint a smile on our face and fake joy. More so, I believe James wants us to know that the struggle is real, and even there, in the very real struggles of life, we can find grace and the mercy of our God, because God is at work in us. Back to verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness must have its full effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what's going on in the trial. So, come as you are. Bring your struggles. Bring your sufferings. Bring your questions. Because God's word has real answers for the how long, O Lord, moments of life for the very real struggles that any of us might be experiencing this morning. And if we're not experiencing this morning, we might be experiencing by this time next week. 
just to encourage you. To follow up on our conference from last week, think of this section this morning like this. James is providing Christians, followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus. He is providing for us a biblical worldview to process their suffering, to process the temptations. He's giving us a biblical grid to help us think through, to process temptation and suffering. Here's the big idea of our passage this morning. Eternity, the character of God, the activity of God is to inform the follower of Christ in the struggles of life. All right, so James is gonna tick through eternity. He's gonna walk us through the character of God and he's gonna walk us through the activity of God and that's to speak to how long, O Lord? That's to speak to any of us who are in the room who are in that place, in that moment of suffering or in that place of temptation. All right, so I know Richard already prayed, but I'd like to call on the Lord again. Let's pray together and we'll dive in. Father God, we need your help. We need your grace and your wisdom. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. We need nothing less than the living God to come and to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, there are real struggles in the room. There is real suffering. There is suffering of body. There is suffering of mind. There is suffering of, of many sorts. There are real temptations. There are temptations. We are being tempted. We are being lured and enticed by our own desires. Lord, and that temptation, your word is showing us here, can lead to death. Lord, we, we are at war this morning with our sufferings and our temptations. And so it is right for us to pause again. God, would you come? Would you move among us by your Holy Spirit? Speak to our hearts, Lord. This is no vain moment. This is no empty, empty words, Lord. I seek not to preach my opinions. I seek to preach your word written and preserved for us this morning. So God, come, speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Number one, eternity is to inform our I'm going to say our now trials. In other words, what awaits us? The future is to speak to now. What awaits us is to inform what we're going through right now. Our now sufferings, James is walking us through a perspective to, to address the now sufferings through eyes or with eyes on eternity. He does this in verse 12. Now I know Alex preached verse 12 a few weeks back. We'll be preaching verse 12. We'll be preaching verse 2 again. This is, we, we want to preach like that because we want you to put your Bibles together. James isn't just dropping different ideas out of the sky and going, well, let's talk about trials. Let's talk about wisdom. Let's talk about trials again. And then let's talk about temptations. Here, let's talk about four topics for us. Now, these are all intertwining for us this morning. So we back up just a little bit. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's, that, that crown of life is a view to the future. That crown of life, well, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of eternity is what James is doing here. If we were to put verse 12 in question form, I would put it like this. Is the Christian life worth it? Is it worth it? In other words, is Christian suffering worth it? Because, because if you look at the Christian life, you read your Bible and be a good student of his word, suffering, well, Peter will say it like this. So don't, don't be surprised by the fiery trials. There's meaning no surprise here. You're a believer. That means you're going to have trials. No surprises. You've heard me say many times, I, I think it would be 
Sometimes it would be easier, this life would be easier if I wasn't serving Christ. Meaning there's no fight. (laughs) There's no fight with the flesh. It's like, well, there's a temptation. Looks good to me. Let's go with that. What's the struggle? Is my obedience to the Lord, is my struggle to honor God and going through the trials that following Christ brings, is it worth it? If I wasn't serving Christ, I wouldn't have to ask for forgiveness. Wouldn't need to grant it. If I wasn't following Christ, I wouldn't have to serve in the children's ministry. Wouldn't need to be at the prayer meeting. I could stay home on Wednesday night and forget about community group, forget about community altogether, kick that to the curb. If I wasn't serving Christ, forget about the whole offering exhortation. Keep all my money, use it on me. And so much more, right? James chapter 12, uh, I'm sorry, chapter one of verse 12 is asking that question, is it worth it? Trying to honor the Lord here. And what do I get? I get verse two. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. I get that he's producing a steadfastness in me that when it has its full effect, it'll be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I I get that that this steadfastness, that, that the idea of steadfastness means there's difficulty. And he's putting me through that fire from the sermon weeks ago to produce something in me. That's what I get for honoring the Lord. Shouldn't, shouldn't we, we think like this sometimes as believers, shouldn't my good efforts, shouldn't the good things that I'm putting out there, I'll say into the universe, shouldn't, shouldn't some good just get kind of returned back to me for those good efforts? Sometimes in the church, among believers, we have a Christianized karma way of thinking. It's a false religion to a false God. Shouldn't I just do some good things and shouldn't some good things be produced and come back to me? Shouldn't, shouldn't the good things that I put out there to the universe return back to me? I do my job. I work hard. I try to live for, for Christ. But why in the world does the foul-mouthed lazy guy get my promotion? Is that where you live? That's the stuff of verse two. That's the stuff of chapter one. How about the psalmist when he says in chapter 73, Psalm 73, surely for no reason have I kept myself pure. Surely for no reason have I kept myself pure. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial is for those who are in the room who feel something of Psalm 73. Is it worth it? Here's what's interesting. Verse two, I know we're bouncing around in these verses, but stick with me. Verse two, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, is provided for us to think about following Christ right now, in this moment in the face of the trials, in the moment, that these trials are not to be wasted, but they're to produce something in us that reflects the glory of God, a godliness in us. And then you got verse 12, and that's kind of a bookends. You start with trials, and then he slides us into, does anyone lack wisdom? What Alex preached a couple weeks ago, does anyone lack wisdom? Let him ask God. He gives generously to all who ask. And then he slides back to trials. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And this time, rather than speaking about the right now, he's speaking about the future. So the book ends, here's your trial, here's what you're going through right now. I'm probably gonna need some wisdom in that. 
Humble yourself. Ask God for wisdom, who's the God of all wisdom. And then back to steadfast. Blessed is the man who is steadfast under that trial. For when he has stood the test, future, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, eternity. James is telling us, he's answering, if I was to put that in that question form, is it worth it? James is saying, oh, it's worth it. There's a crown of life that awaits you, meaning there is eternity that that awaits the Christian. He, He says, blessed is the man, the woman, who remains steadfast under trial. Why? Because the crown of life awaits the steadfast one who who wrestles through those trials of life, who wrestles through the now because that future awaits you. The very idea of being steadfast comes with it just this idea of adversity. Now, you can't understand steadfast if you don't have a view of the adversity, There's no exhortation in scripture that I'm aware of that says to us, hey, in all your easy moments of life, hang in there. Be steadfast. Hold on to Christ with everything that's going on that's going your way. Now the point of being steadfast is it's not going your way. So, believer, be steadfast in Christ because eternity awaits you. You see, if there is no eternity, then let's kick verse 12 to the curb. There's no point. If there is no eternity, then I would encourage you, be steadfast and live for yourself. Go for the life grab. Get all you can get out of, Ecclesiastes would say it, get all you can get out of this vain life. Live for the moment. Seize your few years on this earth, and when it's over, it's over, so live for the now, because you can't take it with you, and this life is all that there is. James says, no, be steadfast. Why? Because eternity awaits you. The crown of life awaits you. Let there be no doubt or confusion or wondering or heaven and hell are real places. And we will all go to one of those. Eternity is eternal. There's more to this life than this life. That's what James is saying. And so he says, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And James is in your living room. So you're here and you have suffered this week. And you've gone through the trials of various kinds this week. Here's what happens. And if I could get you to stand up and share about your suffering, which I won't do that. But if we were to do that, my guess is 10 out of 10 of us would say, I forgot about eternity. And I've got a microscope on my present right now suffering trial. I can't even see a year from, I can't see 10 years from now. I cannot see down the road, much less eternity. And that's why James is reminding us, eternity awaits you, believer, follower of Christ. Be steadfast in the face of your trials. You be that blessed man or woman. How so? Oh, eternity with God. We forget about eternity. That's why Paul says it this way. These are light and momentary afflictions. How can you say that, Paul? Because he can say that because he's got a view towards eternity. When we rightly grasp eternity, we'll rightly grasp the suffering that we're currently going through. This is not our forever circumstance. So it's appropriate for James to say, count it all joy, brothers, and he speaks of the trials, and then to walk us through, oh, you need wisdom? Are you lacking wisdom? Oh, call out to the God of all wisdom, and then to take us to be steadfast in the face of those trials, because 
Eternity awaits you. What you're going through right now is to be processed with where you will, where you will one day be. And so James reminds us, the sufferer, eternity, be steadfast. Because your suffering is worth it in light of eternity. There will be a day when suffering is no more. There will be a day when weeping is no more. There will be a day, can you imagine this, where forgiveness and the request for forgiveness and granting forgiveness, it'd be no more. There will be a day when there'll be no more need for reconciled relationships. There will be a day when there is no struggle. There will be a day when the exhortation to be steadfast will be no more. James reminds you now that eternity informs the now struggles of life. So look to the then. Number two, tempted, God is not to be blamed. Let's read this in context. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Let's be clear. God is not the author of our temptation. Someone, it's, an, it's anonymous to me, I don't know who said it, but it's good. To err is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human. It can feel like as we're looking at these passages, again, that James is jumping around from subject to subject. How in the world? He was just talking about wisdom and then back to trials and then he's jumping into temptation. What's the connection? It's the beauty of preaching through a book in the Bible. It's why we do it here at Trinity. We want you to take this piece of the puzzle and put it to the picture. And, and, and you're, putting, you're putting this entire, and all of a sudden you go, oh, this felt like this piece of the puzzle goes to a different puzzle. James, why is he talking about temptation? No, actually, what we do when we're preaching, I hope, faithfully to the word of God is we're taking the piece and we're showing you, now it belongs in this part of the puzzle. And when we're done, you got the whole picture before you, and it's glorious what God is doing And in this case, what God is doing through James. He's not jumping around from one subject to the next. So fight. Really, this is my appeal. Is you're fighting for context. What's the context of what James is saying? So the context, of course, is trials. And in that context, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, I think James is reading our minds. I think he's living in our living room. And I think he's driving with us to work. How so? Well, when we face trials of various kinds, we face unique temptations. Suffering is like a fork in the road. And the temptations are ones in which, well, before you got to the fork in the road, you knew the answers to the test. Is God sovereign? All right, got that one. Is God good? Is God wise? Is God all-powerful? The test is easy, right, until they're suffering. Suffering introduces a whole new set of temptations that you didn't even know existed. Actually, our hearts get exposed in those moments. Like say, I, I knew the right answers for the test. I give you all the right answers and the right answers that our brothers or sisters in the Lord might want to hear, but then when you're in it, our hearts become revealed to what our true convictions are. And I'm saying James is reading our minds and that suffering is this fork in the road. 
When I say fork in the road, it's not as if we stand at the fork and we just blindly just stand there trying to decide. Suffering presents this unique opportunity. Either we are going to, how long, O Lord? And and that's that's a legitimate question pressing into God, not in a in a in a a judgmental or or a uh, accusatory, but it's God. I need to press into you. What's going on here? I need God in this moment of my suffering. And the, suffer, the, the, the fork in the road is either I am going to move towards God or I am going to distance myself from God. But nobody remains indifferent. And I think we think I'm just remaining indifferent. No one stands still. We think we stand still. We're either moving towards God or away from God. We're either moving towards the worship of God or the blaming of God, James, here. We're either moving towards pressing into God or we're moving towards this quiet stewing and anger and distancing oneself from God. Have you noticed that when you're suffering, everything breaks around you like it's not just a thing it everything starts breaking like practically I'm just so uh, speaking practically here that you know the dishwasher breaks and then the clothes washer breaks and then you lock your keys in the car a couple years about two years ago um Kim's dad lent us a bike, his really nice bike, and we started to do some bike riding. Actually, it was in preparation for our sabbatical. We're gonna do bike riding on our sabbatical. Every time I took the bike out, I got a flat tire. I'm not kidding. Three times in a row, one of us was pedaling back to the house to get the truck to come pick up. How do you... I've never gotten a flat tire in a bike. I mean, you know, it lets out, but from a nail, and so every time we turn around, like, how does that happen, what, huh, what? Have you noticed that when you're suffering, everything breaks? Is God just messing with me here? He calls me to holiness, he calls me to grow in Christ, and since I know that he's sovereign, he must be tempting me. And James speaks to that emphatically. He says, no, no. Is God good? Is God sovereign? Is he wise in all these trials that are going on? And we know the right answers for the test, but honest moment, what the heck is going on? Have you been there? God through James, saying God cannot and God will not tempt you, attract you, lure you, seduce you into evil. It goes against his very character, who he is. It goes against him. And we're probably thinking, okay, some might be thinking, I don't blame God. I don't accuse God of tempting me to sin. So let's just move on to the next point. Before we do that, I want to help us to see we all do this. We do. I think we accuse God more than we might be aware of or more than we might want to admit. Here's some examples. If I had a more loving husband who cared for me, I wouldn't get so angry. Guys, if I had a more respecting wife who understood all that I do for her, then I wouldn't get so angry. All the drivers in the room, if all the other drivers on the road would learn how to drive, I wouldn't blow up when driving. If my children would just listen, I would fill in the blank, or I wouldn't fill in the blank. If my boss didn't fill in the blank, 
Our modern culture says, God made me like this. There's nothing I can do about that. So it's God's fault. I'll pursue whatever lifestyle I want to pursue and do so with a vengeance. All the while, I'll blame God. Whenever we think, if I had blank, then I would be a better Christian, a better follower of Christ, I would honor him more. We are subtly blaming God for our sin. I sin because this is what you have brought into my life. It is your fault. Does that remind you of anyone? Sound familiar? Guy, kind of early on in this book, in a garden, as God approaches Adam, what is his response? The woman you gave me. So he blames the woman, and then he blames God. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Because our hearts are not different from Adam's. So if I can't blame God, then why do I sin? Glad you asked. James is going to address that. I sin not because of what God, God has brought into my life. And by the way, though James does believe in a personal enemy, he's going to bring that up in chapter 4, verse 7. But for here and for now, he's also not going to blame the enemy. Who do we get to blame? There's got to be someone to blame for my anger when I'm driving down the road and none of these people know how to drive. Who do we blame? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and is enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed by his own desire. Who do we blame, James? Come on. Let it be the other drivers. Let it be the children. Let it be the spouse. Let it be the boss or the employees. And let it be you, God. But the last place we want to put blame is on ourselves, And that's squarely where James places it by his own desire, meaning that there are still desires in our hearts as Christians, followers of Christ, when there are certain temptations that are dangling in front of us, where we are tempted to blame God, realize there are still ungodly desires that wants to grab the bait. Evil is still in me. That the lures of this world, I love the language. He is lured and enticed by his own desires. The world lures and entices by your own desires. And the evil that's out there hooks the evil that's in here. Now we want to think, I'm better than that. Come on. James is saying, no. <laughs> you're lured and you're enticed and I'm enticed by the desires that are in us. And he's saying that there are things in our hearts, there are these desires, these wants, these lusts, these cravings and they are controlling you. And I love how the imagery progresses, right? It goes from this fishing imagery to this birth imagery. Verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's a great picture. A lot of you, 
enjoy fishing. I'm not one of those. I enjoy feeding. That's what I do. I feed the fish. You drop, you who fish, you drop a lure in the water, right? And you get, you, you guys, the Bennies and the Richards and the Tylers and the, there were a lot of you guys in the room spend time with this, right? Like you, you, you spend time with the lure, you got to have the right lure for the right fish for the right time of day. And you drop that lure, right, into the fish bed. Because you know that that fish has some di- desires within it. And even though, right, what do you do? You hide the hook. The only thing you want to reveal to the fish is what is tantalizing. What is desirable, right? And then you guys, you know just how to kind of tug the line just a little bit. And you make that thing wiggle just a little bit. You know what needs to, what, what needs to happen, what that needs to look like for the fish. Because you know that that fish has desire. You know that you can draw him out from the fish bed. All you got to do is cast that line and get it in front of it. Some fish are so dumb that you've caught them more than once with the same lure in the same day. Some Christians, all of us. But you know what James is saying here in his imagery, fishing to birth and then death? Is he saying temptation hides the hook? Because when you go for the grab, you're not thinking death. Neither is a fish. You're thinking this is good. This is life. This thing that is enticing to me, that I have desires for, lies to me. It hides the hook. It hides the death. But James is making it very clear for us. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It can be death to a family. It can be death to a walk in Christ. It can be death to a relationship. It can be death in so many different ways. It can be death to a career. It leads to death. And James is saying, look, don't put the blame on God. He's not tempting you. He's not dangling that lure in front of you. The lure is in you. You're lured and you're enticed by your own desires. Practically, what does this mean? It means this, every moment of anger, every moment of bitterness, greed, impatience, jealousy, envy, worldliness, lust, every take the bait moment reveals that when in the trials of life, my heart's being exposed and the condition of my heart is being exposed. It's not about all the stupid drivers around me. I'm being hooked, lured and enticed to the desires of my heart. I'm in a moment of inconvenience in this, in this parenting moment, these children that you gave me are ruining my comfort and the ease of life which I believe I deserve. It's not about the stupid drivers around me. I'm being hooked and lured and enticed by the desires of my heart. James is saying, don't blame God for that and know this, it leads to death. And we buy the lie that sin will not lead to death. Now here's what's amazing. This is a beauty. Put the puzzle together. Verse 12, speaking of blessed is the man who remains steadfast, he'll receive the crown of life. Speaking of eternity, That's what's in view. In verse 15, death is in view. 
And just like the fish, the light refracts the water just right on that lure. The bait wiggles perfectly. The delicious bait hides the fact that there's a hook, and the hook will kill you. Why did I blow it again? Because there are still sinful desires in my heart. Cravings, lusts, wants, things I think I deserve, longing to be in control. I'm not getting what I want. I would rather get what I want than honor the Lord. I would rather indulge rather than cut. My problem is not with God. My problem is with my heart, desires. And in the temptation, put together the puzzle, I forget about eternity. And I forget about the character of God, who God is. And I forget about who I am in Christ. And I start to ask the question of the garden, has God really said Does he really expect that? And I take the bait. Who's to blame? God? No. Satan? Well, he's involved. But ultimate blame is cast on me. I'm responsible. And I need to be rescued from myself. So verse 15 is the opposite end of the spectrum from verse 12. Now put that together and put the previous section together. Does anyone lack wisdom? Let him ask God who gives generously to all who ask. But let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea being driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not Presume he will receive anything from the Lord. Put it together with the rest. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces. God can take all of the junk and he can use it. So allow these verses to drive you to grace to drive you to your knees, to drive you rather than to call out at God, to call out for God. I need your help. God, help me. That is grace. Number three, the character and the activity of God also informs us in our trials. What does he say? Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. It's kind of like the word steadfast, that, that deceived. You know, the, the reality is, how do I put The only point that scripture regularly tells us don't be deceived is because we are deceived. Now here's further deception. When we sit around and go, yeah, I know some people like that. I know some people who are deceived. The point of scripture in reminding us, and he even calls them brothers, so these are brothers, so don't be deceived. Church, don't be deceived. We often weirdly think, I'm not deceived. That's those people. I've got it all figured out. And James says to all of us who've got it all figured out, don't be deceived. And he tells us to not be deceived, and he, and he goes about it by saying, here's who God is. He's not the tempter. But here's who he is. That's verses 17 and 18. Let's read. 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. That's who God is. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's who God is. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's his activity James is saying, this is not who God is. He's not the one who tempts you, who lures you, who entices you. That's the desires that are in you. But do let me tell you who God is. And that's what he's unpacking for us. First thing, who God is, is he's 
He's the one who gives gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's the, he's the giver of good gifts. And his greatest gift that the giver of good gifts has ever given is himself. The elderly music teacher was greeted one day by a student with this question. What's good today? At which point, the elderly professor grabbed his pitching fork and he struck it. And he said, that's an A note. That's an A. And that's an A yesterday. And that'll be an A tomorrow. And that will always be an A. Non-musical people, a note on a pitching fork that happened to be an A that he struck. And he continued and he said, the soprano next door is off key today. The tenor down the hallway is out of tune. And he struck his pitching fork again. He said, but that's an A. And it'll always be an A. And that's what's good today. Listen again to verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's unchanging. What's good today? Here's what's good today. God doesn't change. His character, you can't change perfection. You can't improve perfection. You can't in some ways, God's not growing like we are. There is no need for God to grow. In him, there is no variation or shadow due to change because his very character doesn't allow for it. And that's what's good today. That's the good news today. That as we're being lured and enticed by our own desires, God's not being lured and enticed by worldly desires. What, what's so good about God not changing? Well, if God was to change, there is no reason for you to put any hope in this book. None. If God has, has changed the slightest degree in all of history, then forget it all. There is no certainty in the truth of this book. But if God is unchanging, if there is no variation or shadow due to change, it's called the immutability of God. God is never changing. It's who he is. And because of that, Christian, as you are walking through this life and there's suffering and there's trials and you're calling out to God for wisdom and you're walking through the temptations of life and you're recognizing, ah, I'm changing and it hurts and you're fighting. Know this, God never changes. And appropriate, hallelujah, amen, and and all just uh, praise God like the elderly professor Hit the pitching fork. It's an A, and it'll be an A tomorrow. That's the glory of the gospel. The giver who gives good gifts is also the greatest gift given. We receive Christ. We receive his forgiveness. His blood has washed away my sins. Thank you, Jesus. The worship team, would you join me? Rather quickly, I should have called you up already. 
Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself to me. Gave himself for me. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. I... I say this respectfully. Please be a reader, be a student of your Bible. We like to speak more of the free will of man than the free will of God. Wrestle with the free will of God in Scripture. Scripture speaks more, speaks of the free will of God. How's the will of God being operated? Hear this as a good gift. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That word there, forth, is a picture of he brought, he brought new life to you. He brought you forth is the imagery, this new birth. This is, this is the, you know, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins, but by his own will, he breathed life into your dead soul. Thank you, God, if you're able to say that this morning, sincerely, it's because he breathed life into your dead soul. It's the activity of God that James is speaking of. How does he do that? By the word of truth or by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the word. Christ is the word, the living word of truth. So eternity, the character of God, and the activity of God is to inform us this morning as we're walking through the struggle, struggles of life, James writes to us to say, here, here's how you process these struggles. Look to eternity, look to the character of God, and look to the activity of God, and be steadfast, immovable. Don't move. Your faith in the Lord because his character is immovable, not moving on your behalf. Stand with me, please. God, would you help us? Lord, I don't want to minimize struggles and sufferings that would be in the room. Lord, folks that are here saying, how long, oh Lord, we're not trying to say, just pretend it's not there. Just pretend and put a smile on your face. But God, I pray for real wrestling with you. Healthy God, I need wisdom. God, I need your help. God, I need you in my life. Lord, I'm going through this temptation or I'm walking through this suffering, these trials, and God, I need you. Lord, would you help us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in song.